Welcome to Back from the Abyss. I'm Dr. Craig Eacock. I'm recording this on the day after Thanksgiving, and I've been giving a lot of thought to what I'm thankful for, what I'm grateful for. Yesterday at Thanksgiving, I asked everybody around the table what was a highlight of 2021, and one thing that popped in my head was hiking five days to the Colorado Trail with my identical twin girls who are now 20. That was just such a lifetime highlight. Another one that I didn't mention, because I thought, oh, I'll just mention this today during recording, is just doing season three of the podcast. You know, uh, Chris and I contemplated ending it after season two. We were both just pretty burned out after COVID and doing the remote recordings and not getting to hang out, but we've really been recharged this season. And uh, one of the things I'm so grateful for is all the letters and phone calls and um, I should say emails, nobody sends a letter, the emails and texts and phone calls from all of you. It's so heartening and it's just amazing to know that this podcast is reaching so many people and and it's uh, it's doing what I'd hoped, you know, when Chris and I first started talking about this in early 2019. So I love the emails that people are sending and the iTunes reviews are such love letters. I read those and sometimes I tear up. I think that's so sweet what you're writing. I really appreciate that. So today I want to just just start with a letter that I got recently that I thought was so interesting. And uh, this guy and I have been emailing back and forth. He always sends me really interesting questions, but let me just read today's letter. This came actually a couple weeks ago. Um, Hey, Craig, I'd love it if you would one day give some time on the podcast, if relevant to further explain and elucidate the distinctions between various syndromes you've mentioned. I think I see how depression and anxiety can be understood as syndromes. I try to relate these to autism and ADHD, which I also understand to be syndromes, or umbrella terms for a wide and varying array of characteristics and experiences which can include depression and anxiety. That suggests a hierarchy of disease, if that's an appropriate term, But it seems problematic to differentiate in this way. Are we speaking about syndromes within syndromes? I wonder if it's useful to think about all these things in one big three-dimensional spectrum bubble in which every symptom can potentially overlap any other. Yes, I love that. I'll talk about that in a minute. So then, are trauma and other kinds of stress reactivity also to be seen as as syndrome umbrellas? And then, Where do these stand in relation to neurological differences and who we label as quote-unquote neurodivergent? Is that distinct from people who have either suffered brain changes as a result of trauma or have had these changes as a result of trauma and who are genetically predisposed for that? So I emailed him back. I said, "Uh, that's a lot, but I'll talk about some of these on the podcast. So first of all, yeah, I love that idea of psychiatric syndromes and symptoms and nosology, which means the kind of the origin of psychiatric illness as a three-dimensional kind of Venn diagram. So if you imagine this idea that there's a bubble, if you will, of let's call it mood sleep, because mood and sleep are so tied together. There's another bubble of dopaminergic uh, activation slash important slash psychosis because dopamine is the hormone that tells us pay attention this is important but when dopamine gets too cranked up in certain circuits of the brain uh, it can lead to psychosis so there's kind of a psychosis dopamine bubble there's also an anxiety bubble um, and there's a cognitive bubble and these all overlap in three-dimensional space and then when you think about this idea of neurodivergence uh, yeah i imagine that i love this letter i really agree with this idea that that uh, neuroatypical people have uh, different connections, different kind of highways between these symptom bubbles and that they express differently. And then, this is such a great image I love in this letter that he says, or he asks if trauma might be seen as a, trauma and stress as an umbrella over everything. And I totally agree. I think of trauma as sort of a nonspecific magnifier of all these different um, symptom bubbles or or psychiatric bubbles. And I do think this is a much better way to think of psychiatric illness, which again is so over, overlapping in its symptoms and its etiology and its genetics and its environmental triggers and causes. And you know the DSM Diagnostic Statistical Manual, which reads more like, a, like the world's longest Chinese restaurant menu, is really not a helpful way to think of you know, how psychiatric illness 
is developed or organized or caused in the brain. So love that letter. Thank you very much. In today's story, Georgina tells her story of developing body dysmorphia as a teenager, then later a terribly destructive eating disorder. Body dysmorphic disorder, or BDD, is a type of delusional OCD where people cannot see themselves accurately. They see features of their body as disgusting or malformed, misshapen. Every glance in the mirror, every assessment of the body part in question leads to disgust, shame, horror, and often suicidality. BDD doesn't always lead to an eating disorder, but it often does. And in Georgina's case, she found that controlling her body weight and size gave her some sense of control over her body dysmorphia. And this is a common but really destructive clinical progression. The best way to understand the relative contributions of genetics and environment with psychiatric illness is through the studies of identical twins separated at birth. This is called monozygotic twin concordance. Now, body dysmorphic disorder has a monozygotic twin concordance of about 50%, and eating disorders are around the same. So this means that they are both, on average, about half genetic and half environmental. Georgina's story is a good illustration of the shared etiology. She comes from a long line of family members with eating disorders, and she heard lots of messaging in her extended family about maintaining weight and control. And this need to maintain control, it's a central feature of eating disorders and BDD, and it's linked to an inherited personality trait. Because it turns out that five components of our personalities are inherited, and you can remember them with the acronym OCEAN. O-C-E-A-N. O stands for openness to new experience. C, conscientiousness. E, extroversion. A, agreeableness. And N, neuroticism, which we might see as the opposite of resilience. Now, the last of these five inherited personality components, neuroticism, is deeply linked to BDD and eating disorders. People with high neuroticism struggle to maintain psychological equilibrium. They're highly sensitive people who can be rocked by things that more resilient people don't even notice, such as the natural creases of the abdominal skin, or the normal imperfections of the face, or the way lighting can change the way we look in different contexts. This tendency towards high neuroticism also helps explain why SSRIs are often helpful with body dysmorphia and some types of eating disorders. SSRIs can dial down neuroticism, helping people not get so overwhelmed by their perceived imperfections. Perhaps most interesting about the use of SSRIs for body dysmorphia is that they actually directly treat the delusions now, normally we think of delusional thinking as related to the dopamine system of the brain. Antipsychotics, they block dopamine 2 receptors and thus dial down delusions and other psychotic symptoms. But SSRIs, they address the essentially psychotic symptoms of BDD in a totally different way. Anyway, Georgina and I also discussed many of the key features of eating disorders, including orthorexia, intuitive eating, and moving toward embodiment. I hope you get a lot from this story. I know I did. When I was young, young, it wasn't there. I was just kind of like existing. And then in puberty, it's definitely when it began to approach armpit hair, like just body hair everywhere. My family is Middle Eastern, so I had a little bit more hair on my upper lip. Yeah, there must be something wrong just because I saw most of the women around me and they didn't have any facial hair and they and then like my eyebrows like kind of like a little bit meeting in the middle and just like those things that were quote unquote unfeminine just made me think that there was something seriously wrong with me. So pre-puberty, pre-menses, you felt more or less okay about your appearance? Yeah, I was just like, this is, I don't think I thought about it. I was like, this is who I am. People around me say I'm really cute, <laughs> so I believe them. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And then with the onset of these changes, I mean, were you able to discuss them with anyone, or did your family comment on, comment on how you looked or the changes that were happening? I think, I, yeah, I didn't discuss them with anyone. 
I don't know if it would have been possible. Like, no one said it wasn't possible, but also I was extremely, like, shy. So I just didn't think that it was okay to bring up those kinds of topics that were, like, seemingly taboo. I just felt like I should follow, like, the normal path and that that wasn't the normal path. And I shouldn't let anyone know that that was happening because there was something wrong with me. So, like, I should figure that out and, like, make it go away. Mm -hmm. Did you you start to feel ugly? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I started to feel ugly and like I struggled with acne, still do. And that played a big part just because like, yeah, it's it's hard to have bad acne. Like it's the first thing you present to the world, like your face. And like if you're already an anxious person, you're just gonna, you're gonna want to hide all the time, which is what I wanted to do. But instead, I I couldn't hide. I had to go to class. I had to see people. So I would just manifest it in like these weird, these weird tendencies, like to pluck my eyebrows, like almost completely off. And I thought that that looked really good. And I still, I still don't completely understand it. But I, I, I like compare it to making my body smaller. It was just trying to control things about my face. Like I was like, okay, if I can pluck my eyebrows the way that they aren't, which my eyebrows are like naturally just very thick and like bushy, like if I could do the opposite, then that that's better because that's not me. So like it has to be better than me. I remember in middle school, I had just started to like express myself in different ways. I'd like cut a pixie cut. I cut my hair really short and I like would put blue gel in the front of my hair and just like unique stuff like that that looking back I'm like oh my god that's so cool Mm. but then as I started like those feelings started intensifying I like thought of that period in my life I was like oh my god you're turning into a freak and then that was kind of like the point that I decided to like erase that and backtrack and go back to like what I thought was really normal Mm. which was the opposite of that Mm. and so yeah what did that look like this this need to be normal again or to like try to try to fit in growing my hair out whatever like was conventionally attractive to like basically cis white men in my high school mm-hmm. that's what i needed to be so yeah i started just being like as like small and like palatable as possible mm-hmm. and it wasn't necessarily like, the small just yet cuz my i was actually like privileged to be a like normal body size that I also never really worried about my weight like it started really with my face Mm -hmm. but then when I realized that I could control my weight or at least I thought I could then then it went there Mm -hmm. even though my weight there was nothing wrong I remember feeling okay about my body, which is another thing that I feel like I'm really blessed for is like, I, I remember intuitively eating in high school. And that's something that I have a reference for that I like went back to in my recovery. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I remember feeling okay, okay about my body. Like sometimes I would want to like be curvier because I was very like, I guess this was a part of the body dysmorphia. Like I felt like a lot of things about me were very masculine. Like I had a very like flat body. I started to grow breasts, but not that much. So I felt like very not feminine. Yeah, I was just like going towards that like ideal of what is hot or whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So some of our listeners will know what intuitive eating is and probably a lot won't. Maybe, and we'll talk more about that later too, but maybe just a quick introduction. You said in high school, you were still eating intuitively. At that point, it, it... it was more like mindless intuitive eating. So it was like, I guess I would just be intuitive eating without knowing I was doing it, which is just like the organic way to eat. Um, I would just eat when I'm hungry, stop when I'm full, eat what I wanted, like didn't didn't think twice about, I was was a pescatarian, so I like never really was eating any meat. But other than that, I would eat whatever I wanted. So just like not, not giving like any like overthought to food or my body. And then when I exited high school, that's when it kind of like just consumed me that I had to change something. Mm -hmm. What were the either overt or kind of covert messages that you got growing up in your family as a girl and young woman? And was body image, um, appearance, was it something that was 
openly talked about or maybe something that was suggested or hinted at? Or what, what kind of messages did you pick up from your family? My fam, like my mom and dad were so, so good about just like teaching us how to intuitively eat just by like presenting everything as an option with vegetables and chips and like all of those things were in the house. So like, I feel really grateful for that. But in terms of body, it just wasn't talked about. It was like, this is something that like is here to be like controlled and to like stay static and not change. Mm -hmm. That's the message that I got. It's like something that like needs to be controlled. And it was never said, but that's just like what, like the the vibes I picked Mm -hmm. up. (laughs) Yeah. Controlled or what? Like if you were to lose control. Well, what if it were to lose control, I'd always heard like the whispers of my family just like talking about other people gaining weight and like other people losing weight. And like I knew which one was good and I Mm. knew which one was bad. And I knew the losing weight would get praise and approval, which is like what I deeply craved Mm. and that the gaining weight would get extrication. Not, Not like, oh, you're not a part of this family anymore, but like people would talk badly about you. And I thought that that was like the worst thing ever. Mm -hmm. Like, just to not be accepted. Mm-hmm. Like, would your family comment when you lost weight or gained weight, or did that come later after you'd already left home? Yeah, but again, like, my parents and my brothers never, like, my immediate family never commented on my weight or my eating habits. They're, it's always been so, like, yeah, accepting in that way. But then my extended family would be the ones that mm-hmm. would that I would hear it from. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just to like backtrack a little, like I feel like my childhood with my immediate family was extremely sheltered in that I never experienced any of those like like negative comments or anything. And then I went into like the quote unquote real world. And then everyone in my office was like, oh, like we should go on this diet. Oh, blah, blah, blah. And then I would bring in like my whatever, like I wanted to eat for lunch. And then they would be like, oh, like I can't believe Georgina's eating that. That's so cool that she can like let herself do that. And I was like, oh, should I not? (laughs) And like, then there was a, like a bunch of little things like that happened. Like I had a doctor's appointment and my doctor was like, commented on my weight that, oh, it was fine now. But if I, if I gained any more, it would be a problem. And that's, that really stuck in my head. And I was like, oh, this is a problem. Mm -hmm. Like, and that you're about 18 at this point. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, this is a problem, so this is what I'll solve. Like, this is the problem that needs to be solved, not anything, like, deeper. Mm-hmm. Just my body. What did the early stages of that developing eating disorder look like? It started really slow, just like, oh, a few healthier choices. I was like, oh, I should stop eating cookies and candy and like that bad stuff. And I should start just like focusing on more whole foods. And in the beginning, like that, that like initial like moment where you actually feel really great. I was like, oh, this is, this is something that will make me feel really good. And then it just kept on going and it kept on, it kept on being like more and more obsessive. And in the beginning, it started as orthorexia, which is like the preoccupation with just eating healthy foods that are quote unquote clean, like Mm -hmm. the clean eating movement. Mm -hmm. Um, And I just, when I knew it was getting to a point that was not okay, was when I was standing in like a grocery store with a jar of almond butter and just staring at the ingredient label, like frozen with like terror for like five to 10 minutes. And I didn't know if I should buy it or not because this was like in my mind, a life or death situation. And then I was like, whoa, something has gotten really wrong and I don't know how it got here. Yeah. And it was like coupled with exercise regimens. So like it was just like, uh, yeah, obsessive over like every aspect of health or like what health should be. And it was the beginning of like the Instagram influencer era mm-hmm. that that threw me for a loop. <laughs> yeah. Tell me more about that. I, I mean, I've had a sense here as many people have that social media can be just kerosene on the fire of body image and, uh, and eating disorder stuff. 
Yeah, and I like went straight into that fire. Like I made my own account. I don't know if I had told you about this before, but I made my own health and wellness account, which is the most ironic thing. <laughs> I remember in the beginning of recovery, I was so mad because looking back, I was like, why did I do that? And also, why are half the people in this space also doing this? And it's very, it's a very complicated answer, just like that people, like there's a mental health crisis. Mm-hmm. But yeah, going into that, I truly thought that I was just benefiting people at posting healthy recipes. And like, I'm sure it did benefit some people. Like I had heard that it did. But on the other hand, like there are so many people with eating disorders on Instagram. Looking back, um, like I, my opinion now is that no one should post health advice except for dietitians. But yeah, and yeah. it's almost like you were in a well-meaning way in your kind of eating disorder brain. You were posting what you thought would be helpful. Yeah. But re- really, it was how can you maintain your eating disorder and and feel okay about it because you're following a health and wellness influencer who is posting quote unquote healthy foods or yeah. clean foods and. Could see where people following you, you are all kind of sharing this sort of delusion. Like we're all doing a good thing together. We're helping each other. Yeah. Uh, but then behind it was a lot of people that were like extremely scared, and t- like terribly scared and competitive over like who's being more healthy. Mm-hmm. And how much on your health and wellness social media? How much were you posting pictures of yourself? It actually started with barely any pictures of myself. And I always laugh about this because it was like bowls of oatmeal. And that's how I got like Insta famous. (laughs) You were the oatmeal woman. I literally was. And I would like, people would love these bowls of oatmeal, these carefully like created with the fruit and nut butter, whatever, like just making it into kind of like an art form, but not the people not knowing the mental process that's going behind it, which is just that it needs to be this way and there's no flexibility with food that you're just always thinking about what your next meal is going to be because you're scared it's not going to be you're not going to feel okay just a a need for control Mm -hmm. yeah so so a lot of your feedback and followers they were really drawn in by the oatmeal oatmeal yeah (laughs) Yeah, i was imagining too it's probably some of the influencers are pulling people in maybe with their recipes or you know food porn but also with pictures of themselves, like, hey, this is what I look like. Look at, look at how my body's transformed since I am following this very carefully thought out, you know, quote unquote, clean, healthy diet. So when I, when I relapsed into like the worst one where I, where it was like outwardly the worst time too, because I lost the most weight and people could see that something was really wrong. The other times before I was closer to a acceptable weight and people could be like, oh, you look really good. Um, and just bypass it. But this time was pretty bad. And that was the time when I actually decided to post pictures of myself. And people were like, oh my God, what did you do? You look amazing. And all that praise was just like feeding my eating disorder. And I was like, I do look amazing. <laughs> like I've, I've done so much. But underneath, I knew that it was not, it was not right. And then, yeah, I, I went through a little time where I like in recovery, where I was kind of talking about it a little on my Instagram page and like I saw other influencers go through the like similar process of like being like oh this point that you saw wasn't actually genuine like I was going through a lot of bad shit Mm -hmm. and at that point I was so angry I was like because I didn't know what was going on with me so I was like how could they and I was like you're doing the same thing Mm -hmm. but then eventually I began I ended up just deleting my Instagram and just completely distancing myself from that There's something just deeply ironic that in the probably the early to mid stages of an eating disorder, people are often getting genuine feedback from family members or friends or people who follow them on social media saying, you look great, like you've lost weight or you've toned up. or And so well-meaning people could give feedback that actually is just fuel yeah. on the fire. 
And I think that there's very few other kinds of toxic sort of ways of coping that are like that. I mean, I don't, I don't think early on in a meth addiction or cocaine addiction or alcohol addiction that people are commenting on how good you look. But I do think in the early stages of some eating disorders, you know, there are, people can maybe lose some weight, at least initially, where people say, yeah, you actually look healthier, or you look better, or you look prettier, or um, you look hot. Yeah. And it makes me think of like the diagnosis of atypical anorexia, which is like, what maybe I would have fit into before that third relapse. I don't even know what it means, like an acceptable body weight for society. But then I realized that there isn't the the typical picture of anorexia, which is like skin and bones, isn't necessarily anorexia. You can be anorexic at any body size. It's Mm. just the behaviors. It's not the actual weight. So I feel like that's just something that people are beginning to understand. Anorexia isn't just that emaciated person just starving themselves. It is someone starving themselves, but not in the body type that you might think it is. Mm-hmm. I remember in a couple of different uh, patient encounter seminars in med school, we were taught to use the word healthy to describe. Um, I remember like when we learned the breast exam and the pelvic exam, we were told, you know, use the word healthy. You don't say it looks good or looks great, or, you know, to not sexualize the body it makes a lot of sense. And so I remember that having that really kind of pounded into our heads that, you know, an appropriate sort of positive endorsement that you could give someone is that they look healthy or and But what I found about working with folks with body image issues and um, eating disorders is that using the word healthy has all sorts of baggage. And you have to use it very carefully. Because I have at times used it as, in the way I mean it, meaning like someone looks like they're at a healthy body weight or that you know they've weight restored. And I've learned that it can be a deeply awful trigger for people to have their therapist or doctor say, yeah, you look healthy or you're at a healthy weight. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like really weird looking back at my reaction to that. But like, I remember if my therapist or my doctor would tell me I would look healthy, I would be so upset. I'd be like, oh my God, that means that I'm fat. But now if someone tells me I look healthy, it's the like most amazing compliment. So it's just like really weird to like, witnessed that mindset shift because like to the same exact thing I had such an intense reaction and now like a more neutral reaction I wanted to talk a little bit about this idea of embodiment. I just uh, read Hillary McBride's new book about embodiment. I think it sounds like you're reading it too. Mm-hmm. And I remember as I was reading the book, I was thinking, I've never really understood embodiment. And I think that's because I had the just great luck and good fortune to grow up in the 80s, pre-social media, as a white guy, tall in rural Western Colorado. And I ran and played sports and just loved being in my body, loved movement, I loved competing. But all these things that pull us out of our bodies, and Hillary describes those so powerfully in her book, I just had the dumb luck not to have those. But what it's meant is, I think in all these years of working with folks who are disembodied, not in their body, who kind of live in their in their head. And that's so many people I work with, you know, people with trauma, whether that's physical trauma or sexual trauma or neglect or people with eating disorders or body dysmorphia or even um, psychotic disorders. I think I never really understood what it meant to not kind of inhabit your body and be in your body because I just have always been there. But reading your book, it, it just it brought this home to me so much. And you and I were just talking a little bit before we started recording that you and I have had such an opposite experience of you going through much of your life unembodied and that you having to kind of rediscover your body and re-inhabit your body as, as part of the healing process. I don't know. I don't know if I was ever embodied in childhood. 
maybe maybe at a young age, but then kind of when the body dysmorphia started, it began to feel like really unsafe to be in my body because my body felt like it was like betraying me. Maybe that oh, maybe that did start at, at a young age because I was at six, I was hospitalized multiple times for a heart condition. So that I've written about that before. And it's just like my I felt like my heart was betraying me. I was like, why is this happening? It, there were just instances of over and over again that it felt like my body was betraying me. So I felt like I needed to leave it. And even the moments in high school where I, I was very creative doing photography, which is where I felt most embodied when I was taking self-portraits like in nature, it's there was still like areas that I was cut off from because like I just didn't know I didn't feel safe so and then in my eating disorder I completely cut off from like any anything coming back to my body after achieving being completely cut off from it feels like like a holy experience Mm -hmm. like it's like night and day it's like coming home to like something like much bigger Mm-hmm. Yeah, Hilary McBride describes this metaphor of a house that when we're embodied, we are living in the house, we're living in our body, we can enjoy it, we can inhabit it, we can feel safe and comfortable in there and at home. And we can also leave our house and go out in the front yard and look at our house, we look at our house image or our body image, and we can look at the house images of other people around us, but that we don't spend a lot of time in the front yard, that we mostly are in our houses, inhabiting the house or in our bodies, inhabiting them, enjoying them in all the nooks and crannies and the kinks and the flaws. And, And I think, you know, so often what I've not understood about body dysmorphia and eating disorders is that people are so obsessed with their bodies and constantly thinking and talking about their bodies. But they're in the front yard. They're not in the house. They're not inhabiting their bodies. They have this can completely obsessed with their bodies, yet disconnected and um, not inhabiting their bodies. Yeah. There's this quote from this East Forest song, um, don't worship the front door, go into the inner temple. And that's what you just, like what you just said, it's just everyone's obsessed with decorating decorating the body or like making it the way that they want it to be rather than like being in it How did that, I know that was a long process for you, but what were some of the key steps in you starting to move back into that house, move back into your body and start to inhabit your body and, and not just accept it, but begin to really um, love what it could do and inhabit it? I think after I graduated college, either like a year before I graduated or right after I began therapy and... In therapy, like, I remember those, like, tiny moments in the in the beginning. And in the beginning, I mean, like, a year in. Because, like, I don't know if these actually happened in the very beginning. But there were these tiny moments of where I would look in the mirror and I'd be like, oh, my body's really beautiful. But they were very fleeting and I, like, couldn't actually, like, inhabit them. But I would see that they could be possible. And, yeah, so the, it started really small like that. And then as I kept on going to therapy and realizing that an eating disorder isn't about your body or your weight or anything like that. It's about something much deeper, like things that those, you're using those things to cover up other things. Then that's when I started being more, I started getting a little more curious. This sounds so clean cut when I tell it as a story because there were millions of days, (laughs) there were hundreds of days where I would want to give up and feel terrible and go out for a run when I really shouldn't have been running because I was, my body was recovering and where I would want to 
micromanage and restrict my food. And I did those so many days, but it was just like falling back, falling down on those days and then getting up and trying again, trying again. And eventually like I could stand up for like longer and be a little bit more embodied each time I fell down. And then it was really the year leading into the pandemic. And then the pandemic was when I really just like completely let go because, okay, this is, this just, I know this isn't working. Like I have to, there has to be another way and I don't know what it is, but I have to surrender just, which is the scariest fucking thing to do. (laughs) But I just decided that I had to do it and that I couldn't just keep on going on in this cycle, this like vicious cycle of just trying to live in this way of controlling my body. And then, What did surrender look like? It was just letting myself explore with food again, go back into that like intuitive eating and be gentle with myself if intuitive eating turned into a binge at that time, because it did a lot in the beginning. And just be like, this is this is your bo- your body's telling you something. It needs it needs this right now. And just when the moments that I would previously like punish myself for, instead, really in the beginning, forcing myself to be compassionate, and then it became a little bit more natural. And then I realized that that was working way better than punishing myself. So I was like, maybe this is the way. Yeah, and just pra- it was just practicing and being willing to like face that immense fear. Mm-hmm. I've heard many people say that they moved towards resolution or healing with their eating disorder when they decided they were ready to do that. And so you just talked about at the beginning of COVID and the pandemic that you decided to surrender. Um, I mean, do you feel like that's an accurate assessment for you that with your treatment and everything you went through that at some point you came to, I don't know, the resolution or thought that, no, it's time. It's time to leave this behind. Yeah. Like every, every part of my, of my practice and my work in therapy and my, my studies at, from training as a yoga teacher, everything came together and was like you need to you you need to be compassionate and nice to yourself you need to stop just being mean to yourself all the time because that's going to lead to the direction of death like it really would have and I guess it was fear in that too I mean that was the first point that made me go to therapy fear that I that my body was actually going to die so I feel like it was just that fear of staying in this place because I realized that it was a place that was actually so destructive and not not like productive in any way Let's go back. So when you were 18 is when eating disorder really took off. What did your treatment journey look like? When did you get into therapy? Uh, how did you find a therapist? What, you know, did you have success in those early times in therapy? How did that evolve? Yeah, so my, my primary care doctor noticed something was off when I had lost that much weight. And actually... I hadn't known this before we began talking about the potential of me having an eating disorder, but she was an eating disorder doctor. She'd been like trained in that. So she w- was pediatri- pediatrics, adolescent medicine and eating disorders. So I was really lucky for that, like that I just randomly fell into the care of that doctor for my youth and then into my eating disorder. And she began recommending therapists and I had to go through a few before I found one that I connected with in the beginning there were there were ones that definitely exacerbated like my condition at that time just because they didn't know how to deal with eating disorders yeah do you remember any specifics of how they unwittingly triggered or exacerbated your eating disorder 
I remember one of the first therapists I went to talked a lot about her own struggles and like told me a lot about her own like life story, which was interesting. And like, I don't know if that was, uh, she seemed to want to lead me in the direction that like she was going. And like on the first day of meeting me, she offered medication and like stuff like that. And that just made me feel really uncomfortable. Like I wasn't ready for that. And that she was, she would say that I should manage my weight so I wouldn't gain any more weight because it seems like I was, I was fine or I was, but I was actually incredibly sick. It just looked to her like I was fine mm-hmm. because I, she, she looked like me and I, she thought that she was fine. So I guess it was like a couple of therapists that were projecting their own experience onto me. Um, and then I found a therapist that was, yeah, we just connected and she wasn't like that. She was just willing to walk with me on my path, not like give me a path that she thought I should walk on. Mm-hmm. Do you remember when you finally found this therapist that you really clicked with? When you started with her, how motivated, ready were you to move forward with treatment? Or were you still pretty ambivalent or even openly kind of hostile to the idea of getting better? I think I was really ready, but also wanted to like challenge her. I was like coming into sessions and I'd be like, I don't really, I don't really have anything to talk about. Like, I don't really, whatever, like I'm fine. And she'd be like, really, Georgina? <laughs> um, are, okay, well, you're paying me, so. <laughs> and I'd be like, okay, fine. But I would just do those little things where I was like, I don't want to be here. And she's like, okay, well, you don't have to. And I was like, okay, well, well, I do. I'm just like messing around. <laughs> so yeah, that was just challenging of her, which she always like met with like kind of like humor and compassion, which made me want to stay she wouldn't meet it with discipline like oh are you kidding me don't do that she would be like laugh and just be like okay well it's it's your choice Mm -hmm. sounds like she was really ready willing and able to meet you where you were yeah that the prior therapists maybe they're projecting some of their own stuff or they already had their own kind of treatment plan or goals or they were yeah they knew what you needed yeah i think that that was a big thing for me having Having a path laid out for me made me really upset. That would, when I would, my doctor would suggest dietitians, and that took a while to find one too, because like dietitians have a path as well. And I think that there does need to be a dietetic path for someone recovering from an eating disorder. But I also think that some dietitians know that like you can make the patient think they did it themselves. And that's what I needed. (laughs) I was like, if you make it clear that like you're telling me to do this, I'm not going to do it. Right. Well, plus I think there's uh, this dynamic with so many people deep in their eating disorder that they're pretty convinced that they know more than nutritionists and dietitians. And so yeah. they are very suspect of someone telling them how and what to eat. Because again, just sort of the obsessionality of, of eating disorders, there's so much time and energy spent thinking and studying and researching and planning about what you're going to eat. Yeah. Have somebody, some quote-unquote professional, tell you what you should eat. Yeah, and hard. looking back, if I did follow that path, it would have worked. Like the the path that they say, in order, like they increase your calories, they they give you like certain food groups. That the path that they lay out is a path to weight restoration, recovery. Like then, especially if they include intuitive eating in that path, which is the dietitians that I eventually was led to, but. I, I needed to do it myself and like make all of those mistakes and then go backwards and then go forwards and I couldn't just walk that like groom's path I, I had to like make make all those mistakes mm-hmm. to learn So were there time? you mentioned the time in the aisle sort of stuck, you know, hyper-analyzing the ingredients. Were there other moments or things that happened in your life that made you fully kind of come into the awareness that you couldn't keep doing what you're doing? When I would go on vacations or like to new places and I needed to bring all of these 
ingredients and tools and different things with me in order to make sure that my food was exactly the way that I needed it to be. And yeah, those moments of really like desperately like needing to have control when you're going into a new experience, I was like, this can't be normal. I like convinced myself sometimes that it was normal. I was like, you're just being healthy. Like you're bringing your like collagen powder and flax seeds and all that stuff that could be healthy for some people, but not when you're obsessed. And when I was bringing like a whole like separate suitcase of that stuff, I want to just be able to like go and just be free and like not have to like freak out if this couldn't be brought with me. So those moments of just needing control, there has to be a way to live with knowing that like sometimes you can't have this control. Yeah. So for you, like so many people, exercise became part of the eating disorder. Yeah. You would use running and I think you using other kinds of exercise too. Yeah, that that was probably in the beginning as well. Like I I'd never exercised before in high school or like before that. I tried a couple of sports, but I was really like a pretty unathletic person. And even when I tried yoga for the first time, I hated it just because I didn't know how to be in my body. And it felt really scary to like do poses, even if they felt good. I was like, what is this? This is terrible. I don't want to, I don't want to explore my body. Um, But then I decided to run a marathon in the beginning of college, a half marathon. And that was a big thing for me since I'd never really ran before. And in the beginning, it was great. Like it was like, it was something that showed me that my body could do that. But then after that half marathon, I couldn't go a single day without running. And that also felt like a prison for me because I knew how I was before. Like before I wasn't athletic at all. And I was like, why do I suddenly need to do this every day or else I'm not good? Mm -hmm. So that like was the beginning of the compulsion. And then it became more and more like monstrous. It was just, it was adding of other things like lifting weights and like body weight things, then multiple things in a day. And then like adding yoga and running and lifting weights and walking across campus and also restricting your calories as much as possible then just putting layer over layer to become something extremely destructive. Mm -hmm. So to heal that obsessive exercising part of you, like, did you have to just stop, like stop running, stop doing anything very vigorous to, again, sort of, I don't know, like break that habit, detox that, that obsession? Yeah, I think... I think I there was a period where I had to completely stop and I didn't think that like I thought I could override that period and mostly cut back. Eventually I ended up just naturally going into that because once I decided to once I set the intention that I just wanted my body to be healthy and I wanted to feel true health and wellness, I didn't care how my body looked, I just wanted to have that peace. Then it naturally like I did less and less exercise and then I realized that my body was asking for rest like a period of rest and I was like okay well if I'm on this path then I'm gonna listen so I I was like okay I'm gonna rest and then yeah it just like naturally happened and it felt really right and it felt really good to Mm -hmm. but you couldn't return to running yeah I I haven't returned to running I've tried I've tried it a couple of times recently and I realized that I really hate it. Like <laughs> and that's what my therapist always said. She was like, You don't actually like running and I was like, Yes I do. Like it's my it's my passion. It it wasn't. It wasn't my passion. Yeah, it turned out it was just a very effective way to burn a bunch of calories. Yes. Yeah. And probably even the sort of suffering aspect of running, it's see where that could get in your head, like, okay, I'm really doing something good yeah. that I quote unquote like because it's hurting. Yeah, it's there, hard. There was a little tiny thing with numbers where I had to run at least three miles every time. And if I didn't, like it wasn't okay. So yeah, that, that was a thing that I always needed to do. So breaking that need to run three miles every single day or more was a big thing.
learning to be embodied in in the the beautiful amazing functioning houses of our bodies we we need to learn to find joy and peace and movement but for many people i think in eating disorder recovery that probably can't include you know quote unquote working out or yeah. exercise yeah it, it shifted to movement it's a slightly different term like exercise or movement that subtle shift was important for me and also things that i'd never done before so i i tr- i went through this period where i really like tried childlike things with movement so I like remembered that sometimes when I was younger I liked to rollerblade and I like never did that again so I tried it again and I it was so fun I had so much joy just like rolling rollerblading around the park and like listening to music or just dancing alone in my room in the mirror and like like admiring my body and being like this feels so good and also like it's so cool the way my body's moving and I'd never done anything with dance before because I felt too like awkward and I felt like I wasn't doing it right. But in movement, there was nothing to do right. And that was like really freeing. Even the structure of yoga I had to abandon for a while because it was another structure that I had to like adhere mm-hmm. to. Yeah. Was movement something that your therapist or therapist suggested would be part of the healing process of getting back in your body? Or is that something you found on your own? I think I found that on my own because that actually was a period when I'd taken a break from therapy. I'd just begun grad school. I took a break because it was so busy. And when I had taken a break from therapy, it was the period where it was rest. And it there was no really talk of in, reintroduction of movement. And then I realized, oh, there are these little things that I can do to move my body that feel really good. And that was kind of like a... a part with mushrooms as well Mm -hmm. um that like really helps me connect to my inner child and like honor that need to just express yourself in this free way that's unique to you that isn't a trainer telling you to do it or like an instagram post telling you to do it just like what your body is Mm -hmm. asking did you go into psilocybin experience thinking that it might be helpful with body image or eating disorder or just healing in general or did it come more out of a recreational context Yeah, I didn't go into it with any expectations. Like, I had no idea what was going to happen. It was in a, like, intimate setting just with two roommates who were also doing it. And we had tea. And it was just a really young experience of playfulness, not questioning my every move, going back to that place where I was... I remember I was like rearranging the apartment and I was like, this goes here. This goes here. I was just like... I, felt, I was like, yeah, it does go here. No. <laughs> it, it sounds so weird, but it's just things that children do that they're like so confident about getting that like... And that, that they're not self-conscious about. Yeah. Like, yeah. Just doing it sort of because you want to or because it seems right or... Yeah. But, you know, that inner critic, like, why are you doing this or what are you doing or you're not doing this right. Like, yeah, that, it that felt like that inner, inner critic fell away. And then I was like, whoa, this is like a way that's people can live like without this other voice constantly being like you're a piece of shit my meditation practice is the thing that's constantly getting to know and like quieting this inner critic knowing it's there but just being its friend Mm -hmm. yeah Mm -hmm. yeah say more about that i I think that's really interesting how you know the idea of a, a mindfulness meditation practice is giving you more I don't know if it's power, acceptance, or just more grace with the inner critic part of yourself and and ultimately giving you your life back. For so long, I thought that it was silencing the inner critic and like banishing it and being like, this isn't get away, get out of my head. But it really was, again, offering it love and compassion and like all those things that I used to think were disgusting. I was like, oh my God, like people are like just offer it love and I was like wow that's that would never work and it worked (laughs) and just because that inner critic I feel like is just a part of myself that needed so much love like it was so scared and angry protective just so that I wouldn't get hurt because like I've just always been like super sensitive just sensitive to everything around me and this inner critic was like 
trying to protect me, but it ended up becoming this beast of constantly just screaming at me that I wasn't enough. But then when I meditate and I'm like, just sit with it and just give it my presence, but not my like complete attention and like get absorbed in it. Just be like, I'm here with you. But also like, we just need to sit in silence. We don't need to do this right now. We're safe. And then that's when it got quieter, when it realized that I was there with it, not trying to just like push it away. Mm-hmm. Do you think that inner critic has always been there or did it sort of come to come to life in adolescence? Or I think it's always been there. And I recognize it as like on a more like esoteric level, not even like ancestral. I feel like it's, it's been there so many generations of my family just like this voice that's gone unchallenged and like accepted as like oh, okay this is like actually necessary and this is keeping me in check I also need to be this way to other people because this is the only way this is the only way that people live with this intense inner critic terms of your you know recovery from eating disorder in terms of um, your body image and in your ability to be embodied and enjoy your body and and all the good things it can bring you and and eat food and enjoy food and um, you know go through the world in a way where food and movement are things that you can you know if not at least accept you know maybe even cherish not triggers towards you know, shame and guilt and, yeah. and toxic behaviors. I feel like at this point in my life, I'm in like complete reverence towards my body, utter respect for its resilience and like how it's stayed with me through this process and like all the destruction that I've done and all of the like self-harm that I've done. And I feel like this reverent relationship with my body And it's more, I feel like at this point, I've moved into the stage of really being with my mind, because that's, I feel like something that I completely ignored. The only goal is to make my body perfect. There's nothing else, really. But like, there's so much more. There's a whole, there's a whole world in your mind. And that's where I am right now. It's, it's complete acceptance of my body, but like journeying into that space of the mind And also being aware that, like, this propensity for having an eating disorder is something that I have. So, like, just knowing that I have to continuously choose not to make that my coping mechanism for hard things. Mm -hmm. I feel like I'm really privileged because I'm a person who, even when they gained weight, were still in the normal weight range. So I have that privilege. Like, I'm a a white-looking woman with... (laughs) like a normal body size. So like I never faced the experience that like overweight and obese people can face. I have the privilege of like not being affected by fat phobia mm-hmm. that much. For me it's also been like my like people pleasing propensity. When I want to eat something healthy when I'm out at a restaurant, I like get nervous to order it because I feel like people are going to think I'm in my eating disorder again. Mm. (laughs) And I'll be like, oh, Georgina's back on her like neurotic shit. So I like sometimes order something like less healthy to maybe make people more comfortable, which probably isn't making anyone more comfortable. (laughs) You you look in your family's eyes and say, I'll have the truffle fries, large, large, with bacon. But seriously, it's making sure like I don't appear in certain ways. But then I'm like, okay, you need to stay honest. That's also not listening to your body. You have to stay like true to yourself in that regard. And I think even like other people's comments on other people's weight makes me really mad. It's not towards myself anymore. Like I went through that period where if people made comments about my weight, I would be like so upset and just like spiral but now it's other people and I really have to like work with that anger because I like go off the rail. I'm like, 
Like, I won't say it to their face, but I'm just, like, stewing for days. I'm like, how the, how dare they say that? How dare they comment on someone's weight? You have no idea. If I actually, like, said that to someone, they'd be like, calm down. People don't understand, like, the depth of, like, what it means to me. So, yeah, it's, it's working with that anger. Getting to a place in a neutrality was the biggest part for me because that's something that I'd never experienced. Just being like, okay, this is this is what I have. I'm gonna accept it. But then getting to a place of more love was when I got into a relationship with my partner because he just began complimenting all the things I'd like hated for so long. It made my acceptance turn into more love. Mm. And that's something that I couldn't have had if I hadn't let someone in to like see my insecurities, which I'd never done before. I'd always just acted like everything was fine. If you see my eyebrows getting smaller, like nothing's wrong. Like I'm just trying out some new, um, you know, Mm -hmm. trend. Yeah. Well, it seems like two key things had to happen with your partner is A, he had to give you these affirming, loving, positive, you know, affirmations of of your face and two is you had to accept them yeah because i think actually the second one's maybe harder because you know i've heard many people i've worked with over the years say that you know my husband says i'm beautiful or my best friends say that my body's totally fine and but they can't hear it like it's 10 million people could line up and say you know your eyebrows are great and but the person can't take it in I'm wondering what what it was that in you that was able to not just hear what he said, but to accept it both in your head and your heart, that it was true. I think because I was at the point where I like truly began really enjoying being with myself. I was beginning to like be embodied and like feeling all of the like amazing sensations that my body could produce paying attention to those and just realizing life could be like really magical when you stay in your body and when you become vulnerable. And I'd never been vulnerable with a partner before. I would just act like everything's fine and I would never even bring up my insecurities and I would just run away at the first sign of like adversity or like if I was scared that they weren't going to accept me without ever talking about it. And I would do some really hurtful things in order to avoid criticism, like perceived criticism And then once I began accepting myself, which is like so cliche, when you begin accepting yourself, I didn't even want a a partner at that point. I love being alone. And then it came. Mm -hmm. So at the point where I was okay with being alone and really beginning to enjoy it, then someone else came and was like, you're really amazing. And I was like, okay, well, like I've I've actually felt that. So like, I can believe you. Mm -hmm. What a beautiful example of... Something that we've heard in the podcast a lot is that, you know, we heal through relationship. Like you healed through relationship with therapists and with, um, you know, ultimately with him. Yeah. And even uh, even with yourself, you know, as you talk about in the, you know, the psilocybin experience of finding like that little girl, that playful, unselfconscious part of you that could still come forth and, and be joyous and not self-monitoring, self-critical. Yeah, my life was being completely run by the ego that was created to protect the little girl within me that was like really hurt. So that was that was just a life that was like really destructive because it was at every perceived threat just trying to protect me. Um, and then when like I've had the psilocybin experiences, in one of them I just... I experienced an ego death where it was, I was there, but it wasn't the way I was used to perceiving the world. This thing that was like viciously protecting me for so long fell away. And in that, I realized, okay, so what's behind that? In that, during that experience, I asked myself so many questions about my identity. Who, like, who are you really? 
okay, you're, you're a daughter, you're a friend, you're, okay, you're a photographer. What if you didn't have these expressive mediums and like what's behind that? And during that experience, I realized that behind that was consciousness, loving awareness, and that that was what's beneath all of our like facades, that that's our true nature. That's at least what I was, that's like the revelation that came to surface after that trip. That's something that I'd never considered. What I most take from this story is that Georgina found healing through relationship. First with her therapist, then with her inner child through the use of psilocybin, the non-judgmental, the playful, the embodied Georgina. And finally, through her boyfriend, with whom she could connect on such a deep and trusting level that she was able to hear and feel and metabolize his loving and affirming words that she was okay, her body was okay, her face was okay, and more than okay, she was, in fact, beautiful. And I can attest to this, I found Georgina to be such a wonderfully warm and open and just a lovely light of a person. For those of you still looking for healing, I think there's someone out there who can help you. Don't give up the search. It's worth it in the end, I promise. 